if you're not regularly practicing pleasure, which could take the form of play or laughter um, or just engagement um, and enjoyment or delight, your brain's going to forget how to do it. Wow. So it needs to be rehearsed. It needs to be practiced. And the brain has to be reminded of what it feels like to feel good or it's just going to, it's like a muscle that's going to atrophy or get weaker over time. And this is the foundation of some of the most pivotal treatments that we have for depression, because that's usually the, so one of the defining symptoms and characteristics of depression is something called anhedonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure. Welcome back. My guest today is Dr. Natalie Christine a clinical psychologist and instructor at Harvard Medical School and a depression specialist. In today's conversation, we talk about the six key principles to avoid anxiety, depression, and burnout. This is a really powerful conversation full of new insights and incredible knowledge that I'm honored to share. Feel free to share this conversation with people you know would benefit from it. Let's go. Dr. Natalie, I am honored to have you come on today. We were speaking just before the recording started about some of the topics we're going to cover today. And I think it's a really, really important one, probably one of the most important podcasts that I've done. When I did a poll a few weeks ago about what people want to learn about, one of them was avoiding burnout, stress and anxiety. And I think you're the perfect person to come on here. But before we start that, how are you? I'm great. How are you, Tom? It's so good. So good to be here. So glad you invited me to join you. No, I'm honored. Honestly, I can't wait to have this conversation. And it's on a personal note as well, really. It's it's something I've got a deep interest in. I think well-being and mental health is so important as a teacher myself. I try and give my students the best guidance and advice that I can possibly give. And having someone like yourself come on here, it's going to you know really help them, help me and help other people listening. So Thank you for that. Um, so yeah, over the next half an hour or so, we're going to be going over techniques and tips to avoid burnout and stress. So where do you start with that? <laughs> That's a great question. And it is probably one of my favorite topics to talk about and help people with and work on with them either one-on-one -on -one or in some group settings that I also offer. Um, but I love that you're a teacher. And I think when we take you know, the best care of ourselves that we can. We're also role modeling how um, others to, can do that and follow our lead, follow our example. Plus, you know, we have to take care of ourselves the best we can if we wanna take care of other people and teach other people and help other people. So that's why self-care is so critical. Um, and one of the first things I work on with, with folks that are coming to see me for all sorts of reasons. So as a clinical psychologist, I work with folks who are struggling with all sorts of um, issues. And I work sort of at that intersection of mental disease and mental health from both a prevention and treatment standpoint. So it's a little bit less about peak performance work, although that can get factored in. Certainly it's mostly just helping people get through the day um, and equip them with tools and strategies and resources that are going to help them do that. So stress, burnout, insomnia, depression, and anxiety are the things that I work on most with folks on a regular basis. Um, I'm a depression treatment expert, um, and that's kind of my first love. And I, I really like working with people on the prevention of depression relapse. So for folks that have recurrent bouts of depression or are subject to um, relapse-based on either circumstances, um, their own biology, just stress in general. So for those of us who are at risk of depression relapse, stress is a risk factor. So managing stress in your life and managing burnout in your life from a self-care perspective is really about prevention. 
And I think it's critically important to think about it from that framework as opposed to any sort of reward that you might give yourself. Um, it's, it's not something you have to earn. It's not something you deserve. It's something that's required mm. uh, for good health, mental, physical, all of the above. So, so, so what are the tips? What are the strategies? What are the things that we know work? And so I have like a lifestyle prescription plan that I use to help people kind of walk through step by step. I think you had asked for five. I'll give you six. Amazing. <laughs> okay. And it's really easy to remember. So I use an acronym and the word is escape. And that's also intentional. The word is also easy to remember, right? Especially when you're under stress, especially when you feel the weight of the world and the pressures of life and you have anxiety, or maybe even you're nearing panic, and you're certainly feeling overwhelmed. For me, the word that would come into my mind is I need, I need an escape. Like I need a way out. I feel trapped. Yeah. And so that was, that's a word that's just really easily accessible when you need it. And then what happens for most people is that this, uh, these other options, like kick into gear. So you're primed to remember these other things, these six other things that we know work. Okay. So I'm going to tell you what they are. Okay, so it's, and, and I'm just going to preface that by saying that there's nothing here that you haven't already heard. There's nothing mm -hmm. groundbreaking about anything I'm about to tell you. These are all the things that we know work, but we forget. And then we struggle to make it um, routine or like these things will maybe be the first things to go when we're under stress and pressure. And the first one is exercise. Exercise. Right, so that's not going to be a big surprise. Um, exercise is at the top of the list. Next is sleep connect, appreciate, play, and exhale. And that's it. If you, if you have a way of either in integrating those things or prioritizing those things in your life on a regular basis, and you don't have to do each and every one of those all the time. So what you might do is pick one, two, or three to focus on at a time, mm -hmm. really optimize that, um, uh, get better at that or come up with a plan and practice those things for a period of time, then they become more second nature. They're more available to you. And that's going to help you sustain stress management and burnout prevention for longer and longer periods of time. You also might look for activities that allow you to combine several of those into one. And sport or physical activity of any kind that's also really fun, or maybe you're doing with a group, you're getting like exercise and physical activity. It's a source of connection and it's fun or play, which is a really important part of staying healthy as an adult that we forget. Mm. Um, it's also gonna help with breathing and making sure you're, you're getting good oxygenation through physical activity because you're already breathing better when you're moving your body. If that's something that's available and, and a person is able to do. So right off the bat, I'm going to talk with somebody about how to get more physical, physically active if they want to feel better mentally mm. and emotionally. And so if someone's coming to me because that's what they want, they're not feeling great and they want me to help them feel better. One of the first questions I'm going to ask them is like, what are you doing for exercise? We know exercise works like it's irrefutable at this point. If you're able to exercise and you're not, it's going to be hard for you to feel good. Yeah. And then that's going to affect how well you sleep, how well you connect with other people, how the sense of gratitude and appreciation that you bring and present mindedness that you bring to your day to day. It's, it's going to affect how much fun you're having. So it, it affects everything. And I have this 
I, I think exercise also fixes everything. So that's mm. kind of right off the bat where I would start with folks. I completely agree. I think exercise is, is the pivotal one. So someone who comes to you and is pretty inactive, what mm-hmm. would you advise them? What sort of exercise should they start doing and, and for how long? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So like what sort of dose? And it might just depend on the person, their past experience with exercise um, regimens that they've attempted and, and tried and have either you know worked for them or not worked for them. I work with a lot of you know former athletes who have an interesting relationship with exercise, depending on what what level or what kind of competition they they um, they were performing, um, and so and and how much of their identity has 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 mm-hmm. is wrapped up in that, um, or how much of a loss they might feel because that part of their life is not something they're able to continue now. So it kind of depends. Um, but for those that are inactive or sedentary, what the data show is that any, any activity at that point is going to be better than nothing. What you do beyond that really depends on what you're interested in and what you enjoy. So just going from like the couch to like some movement, which could be walking, um, is going to give one of the, like the biggest benefit, the biggest gain, um, so I, the first thing what I would do is kind of right off the bat is it, like every little bit counts, but what really counts is feeling like it's effortful. So intentional and effortful are the two key ingredients, more so than frequency or intensity, really. It's does it feel like you're doing something, mm. which could be different on a day-to-day basis. Like yesterday, this you know, this type of exercise was like a breeze, no problem. But today it feels harder for whatever reason. It could have, you know, any number of things could affect how good a workout you have. But what you want to do is kind of push yourself to that point where it feels like you've done something, you've accomplished something, and it doesn't actually have to be for a great length of time. It could be short bursts of acute exercise scattered throughout the day where you're just getting your heart rate up briefly and then letting it come back down. It doesn't require sweating, although that's great if you sweat. I love sweat therapy. Um, But it's really the, the point is for your brain to acknowledge and receive the benefit from feeling like it has done something challenging Mm. and to let yourself like receive that reward so our brain is built to reward persistence and effort and so as long as you are sort of like sort of embodying that with an exercise routine that you also enjoy that's the trick and that's the thing that will also um you know keep you know, keep you motivated to do it. Absolutely. Do you ever find though, that people get almost addicted to that reward of how it feels after exercise, and then you suddenly have to start telling them to slow down a bit because they're addicted to almost over-exercising then? Oh, that's a really good question. Such a good point. Um, I think of all, I have, a, I think of all the things to be addicted to, exercise is probably not the worst. So for some folks that are trying to adopt better and healthier habits, like I'm, you know, I'm, I'm okay with exercise, but what I'm not okay with is the feeling as though it has more control over you than you have over it. And that's where it begins to sort of flip into something that may be more harmful than helpful. And I think Mm -hmm. that's what you're getting at. Like, um, you know, you're, are you, um, you know, searching for the high that you get from pushing yourself, um, which again, 
in the grand scheme of things is probably the not, not the worst high <laughs> to be pursuing. <laughs> but at the end of the day, who's driving the bus in your life? Are you in control of what you're doing and how you're spending your time? Mm. Or is fear, anxiety, or um, worry, uh, um, is it becoming more of a form of avoidance and control? Yeah. than something you actually enjoy and experience um, a reward from. Yeah, I think that's so important to, you know, understand because I've been guilty of both. You know, when mm -hmm. I stopped playing uh, sport at a high level, I stopped training completely because, again, it came back to your earlier point. It was the identity thing. I was like, well, if I'm not mm -hmm. this, what am I? And then I started overtraining. And luckily now I've found the balance. Um, but it, it's a difficult one to get into, isn't it? You know, just finding that right balance, someone that suits you. And it's very specific to the individual, I imagine. It is. And also sort of the time in your life, like we like things, different activities and different types of exercises are going to appeal to us at different times in our life based on all sorts of things. Part of it has to do with your own personality, but part of it also has to do with um, an interesting theory about this, about your psychological needs in that time period. So different exercises might appeal to you based on different psychological needs that you might have. And so what I mean by that is something like, like weight training is about strengthening more, more so than it is about conditioning. Yeah. So what sort of psychological or emotional muscles are you also interested in building in the type of exercise that's appealing to you? So in my life, I've been a runner. In my life, I've, I've done weight training. In my life, I've done things like Pilates, yoga. Right now, I'm kind of into these bar exercises. And there's a specific reason why that type of exercise appeals to me now differently than others have in the past. Mm. And so it's just an interesting analysis. And it's okay to change, like, to change it up and to switch it up. And I think your body loves that and responds to those different types of exercises based on you know, either what you're able to do or what you need to do. Yeah, I completely agree. It's it's all about yeah personal preference and what you enjoy at the end of the day. So the mm -hmm. next one, exercise then links into sleep. Sleep is, I'm fascinated with sleep at the moment. I've just finished reading a couple of books on it because I think I, I certainly know, and we all know who's listening now, sleep for me comes down to everything. It can be the difference between obviously a good and bad day. So what's mm -hmm. the optimum time of sleep mm -hmm. per night and how can we get the best night's sleep? So glad you asked. I am fascinated by sleep. Sleep is a wellness pillar. You know, it's, it's, it's exercise, it's nutrition and it's sleep. Um, and so how do you optimize sleep? Well, um, and it's something about which we still know so little, despite how much time humans spend doing it, which is also just fascinating to me. Um, so in the work that I do with folks, it's, it is about finding the sleep habits, the sleep behavior and the sleep routine that works for them. Um, which might be different from person to person, and also considering what else you have going on in your life. Mm. And for them, it's really about making sleep a priority, making rest a priority, kind of shifting your mindset around the idea that sleep is important and it's critical and to carve out the necessary time, not just for the sleep, but in preparation for sleep. And I think that's the step that most people often overlook, mm. that there has to be a point in your day where you shift gears from being active and go like in go mode to like no go mode, to like <laughs> slow mode, to like give your brain and your body some time to adjust from one mode of being into another mode of being. 
Mm. And when, and so you build cues into your environment that are going to send important messages to your brain that that's what we're getting ready to do. And this could happen. This can't happen 30 minutes before you want to go to sleep. This has to happen several hours before you're ready to sleep. So sometime in the evening, you're going to want to start sort of, you know, like take some downtime, do something that's going to help induce um, some relaxation. It could be, you know, gathering your thoughts about the day. It could be shifting your attention to a nice meal, winding down, um, creating an environment that's conducive to sleep is one of the very best things that you could do to improve the quality of your sleep. Mm. beyond just having like you know the other things that we know how to do like to keep the room dark and to keep the room cold and to kind of keep your bed just for sleeping and those sorts of things all of those things are really helpful sleep hygiene habits but I think the step that's really important that we often overlook is the stage of sleep that I would call pre-sleep or sleep prep Um, so routine is really important here have something that you do pretty consistently most nights that are going to send an important message to your brain that you're getting ready to sleep. You could change your clothes into something that you're going to sleep in. It could be a shower or a bath. It could be all the things that you do to like your bedtime routine. We do this with our children. You know, we kind of have a a set number of things and probably a set order that you would do um, if you were training your children to go to sleep and getting them ready for bed. I even have people choose a lullaby that they might listen to that that will um, sort of trigger or activate like a sleep response. Um, So, or create a playlist or something that's designed to soothe you in a way that's gonna help you start feeling sleepy. So what are some key habits then before bed? Because I've heard a couple of things, uh, turn off technology an hour before bed, Mm -hmm. possibly read a book, maybe meditate. What would you advise? I would advise anything that's going to help you feel relaxed. Mm. You can't sleep if you're not relaxed. Like your, your, your body and your brain is just not going to let you sleep if you're feeling anxious and not relaxed. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people will develop the habit of thinking a whole heck of a lot before they try to fall asleep. And so it's really important to give your brain something else to do instead. Um, sometimes what happens is people, I'm totally relaxed and I'm totally sleepy and they lay down in bed and the minute that their head hits the pillow, it's like, ah, I'm wide awake and I've got all of these things that I need to think about and work on. And that's sort of what your, your brain thinks you want to do, probably because it's happened so many nights now yeah. that your brain's like, oh, this is the time where we think about these things. Got it. And you have to be smarter than your brain. And tell it, no, 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 this is not the time where we think about all of these things. This is the time where we think about things that are really boring. And so just clearing your mind in that space is not really going to be possible. What you'll need to do is do something else instead that's deactivating or, um, or down-regulating or relaxing. So counting okay. is really boring, right? So just start <laughs> you know, counting kind of slowly and like this at this regular pace. This is where we might instruct somebody to do some breathing, but I want you to think about your breathing and you might count your breaths as well. So by counting sheep was probably a thing that was recommended at <laughs> yeah. some point. Like, wow, that's giving your brain something to do that's also really, really boring, mm. which will increase the likelihood that you'll feel more relaxed, you'll be less activated and you'll just drift off to sleep. that's so important i think because we've got so many distractions before bed i mean you could have the tv on you could social media is a bad thing to have on your phone it's an addictive thing you know because it's just affecting the way your body regulates it can heighten you Mm -hmm. or it can yeah just get you in a state of anxiety sometimes the thing i've started doing 
since reading these books, listening to podcasts, is I try, I don't always do it, I try an hour before bed, switch my phone off. I try to even put it in the next room now just to avoid distractions. And then the first hour of the day, and I know we're slightly moving away from sleep now, but the first hour of the day, don't look at it. Because if you're getting a message or an alert or something like that, and it puts you in that state of, I don't know, anxiety or something like that, then that's your day started on the wrong note. So it's so important for me to just turn technology off. But mm-hmm. I guess, it, would you advise that as well? I I do. And I, yes, because of the way that it can activate you so quickly and sort of set your day or end your day in a certain way. But, but the main feature of that, I think the thing that's most important is like, who's in control of your life? Yeah. Like who's dictating what you do or not. And so when you start your day on your terms, that sends an important message for how you approach the rest of the day and the mindset that you bring to it. And so just taking it, you know, maybe it's an hour, maybe it's half an hour, maybe it's just 15 minutes where you are setting the tone for the day by doing what what you know is best for you Mm -hmm. and that you're driving the bus. Um, and it's, and then that's a mindset that's important to re-engage like throughout the day. Um, and it just, I think during times when it feels like things are outside of our control, like so many things, um, losing that sense of personal control or autonomy can be highly distressing and highly disruptive. Yeah. So anything that you can do to regain that throughout the course of the day, even it's just, I'm choosing to set this aside for a bit. Um, puts me back in the driver's seat of my life. Yeah. And the third point is connection. So to connect. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting because I read a study the other day that connection is so important that it's found that people who don't connect and are possibly isolated, lonely, it can actually affect their overall lifespan. It's that important. Yes. It it can affect your physical health and loneliness is is a risk factor for physical health conditions. Um, alongside things like, you know, smoking and a sedentary lifestyle. And we also know that connection um, or lack of social connection or a sense of isolation is is probably the number one predictor for depression, is a risk factor for depression. So it's so critically important. But what I think is often missed in the conversation is what do we mean by it? Like, what do we mean when we say connection? I think everybody has a different idea of what that means for them. And that's important. But it's meaningful connections with with other people is important, but it's not the only type of connection that you can cultivate. You can feel connected to other things. And this is because it's not the case that people are always going to be available to connect with when you need them. And so you wanna have other ways to feel connected. You can connect with a cause, a community, a purpose, Um, this could be, you you could feel connected to your yoga class, your yoga studio, your, like some aspects of work. There are other things to feel connected to. And really what we're talking about there is a sense of belonging Mm. and cultivating a sense of belonging. You could connect with nature. You could connect with your pets. It doesn't always require other people. The other thing about connection that's often overlooked is our connection to self. So making sure you're spending time on a regular basis connecting with yourself. Well, what does that mean? Well, that can also happen through things like connecting with nature or grounding, but it can also happen through self-reflection, journaling, connecting to your own values and sense of purpose. 
and feeling that. And there's some aspects of like spirituality in there as well. Like you can feel connected to a higher purpose or even your higher self. And that would serve a very similar, if not even more um, adaptive benefit. How important is it then to set boundaries to protect almost those times of self-care where you need to connect with either yourself or other people or just nature? That's a good question. I struggle with this one. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, it's not saying no, it's saying yes to something else. It's not necessarily saying no to this request. It's saying yes to you yeah. and making sure that you're taking care of your needs too. Yeah, I think it's important. And, and it's, it's so overlooked. We all do it now and again. It's mm-hmm. a hard thing to keep to. It is. There's this sh- these sneaky should statements. Like I really should do this. Or I really should do that. Or I'm supposed to do that. But sometimes the best way to get around that is to just say it would be great if I could say yes to this thing, but I really need to do this today instead. And so that's what I'm going to do. That's important, isn't it? The power of no sometimes. No, I need <laughs> to do this. I need to take care of myself. Mm-hmm. And no is a hard word. No can be no can be a triggering word for people. So I think flipping it around and saying, well, what is it that you're saying yes to? It's important to like make sure that you're uh, that's on the list. And I like what you said next uh, in terms of escape. So the next point is actually appreciate. And I always mm-hmm. find from personal you know, knowledge of myself that when I go for a walk or I connect with friends or I, I just take that time away from all the distractions, I start appreciating things more. I feel more Mm -hmm. gratitude towards everything around me. So how important then is appreciation and gratitude? Cultivating a sense of appreciation and gratitude will automatically shift you into a different um, mental space. Automatically, it automatically sort of shifts your perspective and allows you to be more present minded, which is um, a goal that you might have and more grounded or anchored to kind of what's happening right here, right now. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the practice might consist of taking some time each day, either at like a regular time that you remember and you just build into your routine. This could be something that you would do at the end of the day as part of your like get ready for sleep time is to take a moment and just make a note of the things that either went really well today and the things that you're really thankful for. That is in and of itself really helpful um, and probably not something that we do enough, but the real benefit of a gratitude practice comes from being able to appreciate and acknowledge the things that aren't going well Mm. too. So having an appreciation for adversity, having appreciation for our struggles is one of the things that connects parts of the brain that aren't often talking with one another. Um, and that, and a well-connected brain is a healthy brain. So being able to extract the lesson, extract the upside in almost any situation, you are really, you are like a really powerful person if you're able to do that, mm. um, because managing adversity is kind of the goal. Um, yeah. So that's what I would recommend. I have people do this for periods of time. It could be a week, it could be a month. I've had people do this for a hundred days where they're sitting down at the end of the day and coming up with three unique things that they are thankful for that went well that day. So you can't repeat them. Often when you ask people what they're thankful for, they're gonna be like family, friends, health. You know, I'm, you know, I'm yeah. thankful for this other thing that went really well. And it, 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 um, it becomes harder to, to come up with unique things every day because you really have to begin searching for them and finding for finding them and looking for them in a really intentional way. And is it true having a gratitude journal actually rewires your brain to see things in a more happy manner? Mm-hmm. 
Yes. So it, so this is so cool. Well, I mean, our brains are just really, really good at uh, attending to or paying attention to the things that aren't great. It's built for that. It's built to protect us. It's, it's wired to be on the lookout for things that aren't going well, because things that aren't going well could present a threat or some sort of danger. So like we're automatically already really good at that. And if you're not actively practicing, seeing the things that are good, that are going well, that aren't a threat, you're just, it, it's like the default will be, and this is a negativity bias uh, that, we, that we're all sort of equipped with, which is great, thanks. Um, it will be much, much harder to either see the good mm. when things are happening or remember the good after the fact. So it becomes much harder to recall. And so like, think like what we remember about our life is that it's bad. And that's not true because you're not remember, you're not attending to the things that are going well. You're not remembering or consolidating that and having that transfer into some memory bank that you're able to access with ease later. Wow. That's really interesting to see it that way. It, it, it's just so much detail into it. And for me, what fascinates me, I've listened to so many podcasts and audiobooks about this is, it's just the way it rewires things. And, and since doing it myself, I've gone from having a negative dialogue within my own head to having mm-hmm. a much, much more positive outlook, uh, mm-hmm. positive self-talk, a growth mindset too. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's critical. I could talk about, we, we have to talk again about growth mindset because it should be on the list too. But I, <laughs> I, um, it's just, it's so, sometimes for folks, it's difficult to get from negative to positive to kind of make that pole flip. Mm-hmm. And so what's a reasonable goal or at least a stepping stone kind of in between is going from negative to neutral. Can you at least not put the negative spin on it? Can you come at it from this, you know, what's, what are the facts here? Yeah. Um, before introducing any sort of opinion or spin or bias in either a negative direction or a positive direction. Because sometimes what the situation calls for is neither. It's just, these are the facts. This is what it is. Um, and to come at it from a much more neutral, objective point of view will also help you deal with whatever it is in a more constructive and productive way. Yeah, I love that. And then play. How important is play? What's your definition of play then? Mm-hmm. Good one. No, I, play or pleasure. Um, I would put there fun, joy, um, engagement. Um, it's, it's reintroducing joy and enjoyment or a sense of engagement, which is also really like present mindedness in whatever you do. And really making that a practice that you cultivate in an intentional way. This is really important. This is really important during times of stress because it's usually the first thing to go, sometimes because it feels insensitive or inappropriate given the circumstances. Um, But if you're not regularly practicing pleasure, which could take the form of play or laughter um, or just engagement um, and enjoyment or delight, your brain's going to forget how to do it. Wow. So it needs to be rehearsed it needs to be practiced and the brain has to be reminded of what it feels like to feel good or it's just gonna it's like a muscle that's gonna atrophy or get weaker over time and this is the foundation of some of the most pivotal treatments that we have for depression because that's usually the so one of the defining symptoms and characteristics of depression is something called anhedonia which is the inability to feel pleasure so so but you can you can teach yourself and train yourself to feel pleasure and enjoyment. And we usually start with the senses. 
So connecting with each of your five senses and, and um, letting yourself experience things that you like. Sometimes when I ask people what they want or what they like, they just don't know. Like they, they haven't thought enough about it. It's been so long since they remember enjoying anything or having any fun that getting to reintroduce that into, your, into their lives is one of the best parts of my job. So coming up with a list of things that you enjoy or used to enjoy that you just haven't done in a while, but in, or you like forgot. Um, sometimes when people have felt anhedonic for so long, they start to also feel very apathetic. Nothing seems like fun and life really doesn't seem like worth living. Okay. So that jumps pretty, pretty, it's pretty high on my list, especially lately. People that I talk to just, they're just not having any fun. Um, and so that's a critical, like play is also a, a wellness pillar. And so making sure that you're carving out some time on a regular basis, if not every day, to laugh, have fun, dance, listen to music, get the creative juices flowing, let yourself feel good uh, is so important. What do you advise people who come to you and say, I don't, I don't know what I enjoy anymore. What, where do I even start? What do you advise? Mm -hmm. So pick a sense. Um, start with sight, start with hearing, uh, touch, taste, or smell, pick anyone. And we kind of go through them in a pretty systematic way and spend some time looking around. Use your eyes, look around, or even pull up images on your computer. You could search for like, you know, um, beautiful images and just let yourself notice them and ask yourself, do I like this? Not really, how, do I, how does it make me feel? I mean, you could ask that question, but like, do I like this? Is this pleasing to me? Um, does this make me feel anything? Um, or, and, and you might just put two images side by side and be like, well, which one of these do I like better? And you're already sort of activating that part of your brain that's, um, that's uh, in charge of like preference. And so pleasure begins with preference. You kind of have to know what you like and what you don't in order to like, enjoy something. Mm -hmm. So it could start with something visual. It could be something that you look outside or you notice just kind of where you are. Is there anything jumping out at you that you like looking at? Wow. Uh, and you could do hearing. So like listening to different sounds or different types of music and just, you know, I like this. I don't like this. This is pleasing to me. This, this isn't so much. This really doesn't do anything for me. And just going through the process of testing yourself and letting yourself see what you like. You do taste tests. You could try different tastes, different meals, different, even different textures. You could play with to see, do I like this one or do I like this one? I actually have a set of candles back here that, which I can't do as much when I'm not working with people in person, but you can get your own set of candles or some sort of like aroma therapy and just spend some time <laughs> sniffing things. Like I like this, but I like this one a little bit better. So that's just a really simple and straightforward way to begin reintroducing pleasure through sensory preference. That's really interesting. And it goes back to your earlier point, I imagine, where you write everything down, the things that make you feel good, the things that make you feel bad, and it's just becoming more aware of them, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. The first step is just becoming more aware. And sometimes we're not even aware what we're not aware of. So just sort of like developing that is such a, uh, a foundational or like just meta skill for life. Yeah. This is where something like mindfulness can be really useful, which also brings us to the last E, which is exhale, Yeah, which is using your breath and having the ability to manipulate your breath for better health. 
this is for me uh, one of the biggest ones that I'm I've got the most fascination in because mm-hmm. I think just slowing down, exhaling, breathing, finding a practice that suits you, mm-hmm. it's a complete game changer. I think. So, what is exhaling then for people who aren't sure of this yet? Yeah, no, I'm with you. It is a game changer. And in kind of like the research on exercise, we're just going from like sedentary to active is the biggest bang for your buck. What you do beyond then really, it really, you know, it depends on your preferences and your, maybe your physical goals or fitness goals. With breathing, the, the, the data are the same. So just going from like not being aware that you're breathing to being aware that you're breathing changes your your physiology in such a way that's beneficial how you breathe like there's all these different techniques and types of breathing that you can do whether that's you know like counted breathing diaphragmatic breathing box breathing um there's all sorts of interesting like breaths out there now (laughs) um but just going from not realizing that you're breathing to realizing that you're breathing has a profound effect on um, your physiology and your ability to regulate your own nervous system. Hmm. It's so cool. And what's the type of breathing exercises that you give out? Because I've mm-hmm. seen so many practices, like you said, what, what would you advise people to start with? Where I advise people to start, I think there are some really great apps, but the benefit of the apps to help people breathe, I think are most like, they don't, they don't have to be super fancy. Hmm. Sometimes people will use like a visual cue to help them like um, regulate their breathing. So watching like a breathing bubble or a breathing tree or something that sort of paces your breathing for you and then you can just follow along is really, really helpful. It's not required, but it can be really helpful. Um, What I'll have people do is maybe even count their, their respiration rate. So they might time themselves for a minute and count how many breaths they take in that minute. For most people, when they're not paying attention, it's something like 20 or 22 breaths per minute. And one breath is defined as a full inhale and a full exhale. That's a lot of breaths in a minute. When you start to think about it, or you might time yourself, because the minute you pay attention to it, it's automatically going to change. But if you time yourself again and you're counting without changing anything else, it's probably going to be somewhere between 12 or 15. You want to get it down to six. Wow. The goal is six. Yes, six breaths in a minute, which is a a 10 second breath cycle, which is really only about, it could be like five seconds in and five seconds out. It could be four, it could be six. It's really, it could be even four with a pause and then four with a pause, all of those different, you know, mechanics, whatever. But if you, but the, but a a goal to get to, and this might be really difficult to do at first Mm. is six breaths in a minute. Wow. That is something I didn't know. And what does that do then to the body? Because we hear about how breathing is so good for you, it can really calm you down. But what does it do to the cortisol levels when you're feeling really anxious? What does it do? So it's going to affect all of those hormone levels, your cortisol levels, your adrenaline. But what I love about it, and it's going to start regulating your nervous system better, which is, I think, the coolest part of all. So what it's doing um, from like a biopsychological perspective is sending important message, messages back to your brain about how you're doing. So when we're anxious, when we're under stress, when we're overwhelmed, we're, we're not, we're, it's not that we're not breathing great. We're breathing in a way that our body is designed to breathe, which is short yeah. and shallow, okay? And when we start lengthening our breath or slowing down our breath on, in, on purpose, 
it's sending messages back to the brain that we're okay mm -hmm. instead of the other way around. So there's this bi-directional form of communication between the breath and the brain. And when you are changing your breath, you're basically telling your brain, it's okay, I'm okay, things are fine, right? I know you're worked up about something, but I'm gonna tell you that it's okay. And I can tell you because I'm through my breathing. That's one of the ways that we can communicate back to our brain and our nervous system about how we're doing. Yeah. It also reintroduces a sense of personal control in a situation where it feels like maybe you don't have any. You will yeah. always have control over your breath. You can always bring it back under voluntary control. And that also sends important messages back to you about how you're doing and, I and think what that, you're capable of. Exactly. And I think that's the most important word there, control. When you're in an mm -hmm. anxious state, I think the thing you feel most furthest from is control. So it's just reminding yourself everything around you is in your control. And that's the most mm -hmm. important thing for me when I was going through anxiety is just controlling everything. Yep. It's, it, it's when we feel, when we have anxiety or when we've activated fight or flight, uh, it also messes with our perception of time. And so it feels like things are moving very, very quickly. It feels like things are very, very urgent. And you can also understand why it would feel that way if the brain believes you're unsafe, like you're yeah. threat, right? So one of the very best things you can do just by slowing down your breath, just slowing everything down, will sort of bring everything back into focus. You could also try to talk more slowly, breathe more slowly, whatever you're doing, do it more slowly. And that will also remind your brain like, okay, we're okay, everything's fine. There isn't this urgency. That's a, like, that's, um, it's a misperception. Yeah, that's fascinating. And all six of these have been absolutely amazing to talk to you with. I've got so many different questions, which I think I'm gonna have to get you on another podcast and talk about things like growth mindset. But what would your one advice be to someone, someone who's perhaps struggling a little bit, they're just looking for control and a bit of calm, would it be follow these six steps? Mm -hmm. I think this is, it's a great place to start. It's a great framework. But even before that, it's, it, it is mindset. It is, um, you know, your sense of your ability to manage your own life and the expectations around your success. Okay. So we get motivated to do anything, including incorporate life, incorporating like lifestyle changes. And when we expect or believe that they will be successful. And if we haven't been that successful in the past in trying to incorporate changes and desired changes in our life, we're less and less motivated over time to do it. So it's like this, like, I've tried that. It didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. I tried that and it didn't work. I'm not going to do that again. So the more attempts that we make and fail, the less motivated we are to either try new things or try things again. Yeah. And that can be a sticking point for people. This is also where growth mindset becomes really pretty critical in just setting the stage for any type of success, because there's no such thing as failure when it comes to a growth mindset. And so removing that from your vocabulary is a really important first step to get started in just I agree. And I think we're going to have to do a part two another time when I get <laughs> on the show and talk about failure and growth mindset, because I think that's another topic that's that's so important. But thank you for joining me today. I've loved this conversation. I've got no doubt this is going to help a lot of people. So thank you. Thanks, Tom. I had a great time. Happy to come back anytime.